For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Greetings one and all, and welcome to another podcast on unveiling Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be talking about none other than the Ephesian saints, and in particular, the Nicolaitans that were a prevalent uh, thorn in the side of the Ephesian saints back in the time of uh, John as he was writing the book of Revelation. So here we are back again with the Ephesians. Uh, you'll recall by way of uh, kind of background in uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 3, we learned about how the Savior commended the Ephesians for trying and rejecting false apostles and finding them to be liars. <laughs> I got to thinking about that podcast after the fact. You know, it's always, isn't it always true? You always think of something else to say after the time for saying it has already passed. But since I'm giving you this little summary of that, and it actually kind of plays into this verse a little bit, uh, I was thinking about the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, you know, it's a favorite among everybody, right? Uh, but we're, I'm thinking in particular about the scene when Inigo Montoya takes Wesley to Miracle Max because Wesley's been in the pit of doom and he's nearly dead. He's only mostly dead. Um, and we need a miracle from Miracle Max to bring Wesley back to life. And uh, Miracle Max is trying to explain to Montoya that uh, he's not so sure because you can only be cured if uh, if there's a noble cause. And so Miracle Max takes out uh, the bellows and starts pumping Wesley full of air uh, so that he can then press on his lungs and get him to uh, say something. And what does he say uh, after asking him, what do you got to live for? <laughs> and Wesley is, oh, love. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, of course, uh, Montoya was elated because there can be no more noble cause than true love. And Miracle Max tries, who's, who's not exactly self-confident in his ability to perform this miracle, says, no, 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 no. True love is, is obviously a very noble cause. But that's not what he said. He said to bluff, which means to bluff. <laughs> and uh, about that time, Miracle Max's wife, Valerie, comes out of nowhere shouting, liar, liar, liar. <laughs> and so that's what I was thinking about after uh, studying uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 3, where uh, the Ephesians had tried these uh, false apostles had that had come among them and had determined that they were liars. And I just have this vision of Valerie popping out of nowhere uh, after the trial of the false apostles saying, liars, liars, liars. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, moving on, um, that comes into play in just a moment. All right, so hang, hold on to your horses. Uh, because after verses uh, 1 through 3, when we have condemnation for figuring out that the false apostles are liars, in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, 
we have condemnation by the Savior against the Ephesians because they had left their first love and then they were commanded to repent. And now we find ourselves in Revelation 2.6, which is kind of an, oh, by the way, verse. And that, <laughs> so this is, where the, this is where Princess Bride comes in. Because, see, I had an, oh, by the way, there was something else that I forgot to tell you when I was discussing Revelation 2, 1 through 3. And in Revelation 2, 6, the Lord is kind of having that moment. Oh, by the way, there's something else I needed to tell you that I like about you. So in verses 1 through 3, the Lord says, here's what I like about you. In verses 4 and 5, he says, here's what I don't like about you. And then in Revelation 6, he's back saying, oh, by the way, I just remembered something else that I like about you. And that's what we find in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, which says this, quote, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <laughs> Close quote. So uh, I'm not sure the Lord really forgot. Uh, he's not kind of short-minded like I am. And he probably didn't forget, but we do have that kind of curious pattern that he says, uh, I commend you for this, I condemn you for this, and oh, by the way, here's something else that I like about you. You hate the Nicolaitan deeds just as much as I hate them, all right? So, uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today is uh, the Lord's hate for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So we're going to talk about the concept of uh, hate. We're going to talk about the Nicolaitans and who they are. And we're going to talk about what deeds they were involved in that engendered such a strong response by the Lord where he actually uh, says, this is something I hate. You don't really think about the, the Savior in those terms of actually having something to hate. And yet it, it is expressed right here in uh, verse 6 of uh, Revelation chapter 2. So this verse starts out saying, but this thou hast. In other words, this is something that I approve of or that I can also commend. Now, let's before we get into what exactly is happening, let's talk first about the Nicolaitans and who they are, uh, and then we can move on from there. So they're going to be mentioned again in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, when John was writing his letter to Pergamum. So the Nicolaitans and their problems were not isolated to just the Ephesian saints at Ephesus. So the, to the Pergamos saints also had a problem with them. And in that verse, there's actually also a mention of Balaam, which may suggest that they are what were referred to as Antominians. Um, they were uh, a set of Christian believers who believed that they were not bound by the moral law that for them, sin was no sin because they had faith. They, they had this kind of perverse doctrine of repentance that because we believe in Jesus Christ, his atonement, his saving grace, it means basically we can get away with anything that we want because the atonement is going to cure all ills. So that's why we say they weren't bound by the moral law. And that's kind of a, a teaching engendered, if not implied, in uh, the doctrine of Balaam, uh, which we'll get into in more detail here in a moment. But uh, uh, the, the, this group is also probably mentioned 
in the letter to Thyatira in Revelation 2.20, um, not by name specifically, but by some of the actions that uh, are described. And so essentially when we're talking about Nicolaitans, this is a group of people within the ancient church. And you sit there and kind of scratch your head a little bit. How could such a people get such a perverse vision or view of the atonement of Jesus Christ and be members of the church. Now, keep in mind back in the ancient world, I mean, you have Christians and then you kind of have everybody else. Today we have hundreds of Christian religions, but back in the old day, there's kind of only one uh, game in town. Uh, and so within that one religious body, it wasn't broken down into various sects. And so everything kind of was in one group. But yes, you had very divergent views within the church, uh, particularly, you know, as you come toward the end of this first century A.D., when apostasy is uh, running rampant in uh, the church and in various sectors of the church. And so that's how you come about to have these kind of perverse views about the atonement of Jesus Christ, even within the ancient church at that particular time. So again, these are members of the church and uh, Bruce R. McConkie describes them as members who kind of maintain church standing but they live after the manner of the world. Richard Draper would refer to them as spiritual libertines within the church. Now, having discussed them and their prevalence in the ancient church, I hasten to add that they're also something that still exists within the modern church. That is, the principles and practices espoused by the Nicolaitans are very much alive and well in the modern church in so much so that they're, they are even referred to in the 117th section of the Doctrine and Covenants in verse 11, which states this, quote, Let my servant Newell K. Whitney be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of all their secret abominations and of all his littleness of soul before me, saith the Lord, and come up to the land of Adam on Diamond, and be a bishop unto my people, saith the Lord, not in name, but in deed, saith the Lord, close quote. Now, that was a revelation that the Lord gave in July of 1838, and I, I just need to give a little bit of context here. First of all, who's Newell K. Whitney? He was a successful businessman who contributed uh, a lot financially to the church. He was, of course, a member of the church, and uh, he was called to be a bishop in Kirtland in December 1831, making him the second bishop of the church after uh, Edward Partridge, who assumed the bishop duties in uh, Missouri. And uh, so essentially leading up to uh, this verse in section 117, Newell K. Whitney had been directed to spend less time on his worldly business pursuits and more time on his bishop's duties. And when the time came that uh, the saints were directed to leave Kirtland and to go to Missouri to establish Zion in Missouri, Newell K. Whitney was among those that was directed to go and to be a bishop in uh, Missouri in the area of Adam on Diamond. But Whitney stayed behind to attend to some of his business pursuits, not so much to 
continue them, but to wind them down in a uh, economically uh, advantageous way. And this is what the Lord is kind of striking out against Newell K. Whitney in verse 11 in the 117th section and talking and saying the littleness of soul. <laughs> I mean, these are pretty harsh terms. Um, and he associates this kind of an attitude, this worldly attitude with the Nicolaitans that we're talking about now. And all of this is very much in a modern context. And so that's why we can say that the Nicolaitan prospects, their, their teachings, their doctrines, their principles are things that uh, in some circles are very much alive even within the church today. Now, uh, Newell K. Whitney was twice censured by the Lord here in the 117th section, but he was also censured in Doctrine and Covenants 9350, uh, where the Lord told him, you need to put your family in order. Um, and I, I, you know, I gotta stop and I gotta commend Newell K. Whitney. I mean, he was a faithful member of the church all his life. Um, and uh, despite being censured openly and publicly, you got to ask yourself, how many people in the church, if the prophet came down uh, in general conference and says, uh, hey, Brother Castanet, <laughs> your, your, your podcasts are horrible, and uh, by the way, you need to put your family life in order, and you need to stop pursuing business pursuits, uh, get on your mission, which is something my wife and I, in fact, are working on right now, um, and, uh, you know, publicly, and you say, okay, sorry, man, culpa, and let's, let's keep moving forward and maintain your testimony. I mean, it, I think it's just a, 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 a good sign of the, the good heart of uh, Newell K. Whitney. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and make sure my life is <laughs> always in order so that uh, President Nelson doesn't come down on me the way the Prophet Joseph Smith came down on poor old Newell K. Whitney. Okay, so let's get to the source of the imagery of uh, the Nicolaitan uh, concept and precepts. Um, there is in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, a uh, proselyte by the name of Nicholas. His name means conqueror of the people. Now, to say that he was a proselyte means that he was uh, converted to Judaism and then ultimately to Christianity. And in this particular verse, he was one of seven men who were designated to administer the temporal affairs of the church. And so in a certain sense, these guys, although a lot of people refer to them as deacons, um, they are like the modern bishop uh, to administer in the temporal affairs of the church. And the thought is, um, at least by tradition, and some agree, some disagree, that Nicholas used his position in the church for personal gain. Now, if we go beyond that a little bit further, it's generally believed that historically uh, the Nicolaitans were believed to be a sect within the Gnostic uh, group of people. So they shared some of the same teachings as the Gnostics. We, we have Tertullian, one of the Christian fathers, to thank for kind of giving us a sense that they were closely affiliated with the Gnostics. And uh, you know, I've talked about them before, and by way of brief reminder, the, the Greek word for gnosis, which is where Gnostics come from, 
is knowledge. And so they profess to have a belief in secret knowledge taught by Jesus Christ and the apostles to them during the apostolic period. And initially they would secretly go around trying to tell people about this uh, secret gnosis that they had. And with the death of the apostles, they kind of come out of the closet um, and openly start teaching these doctrines about secret knowledge, which uh, a lot of it involved uh, very impure doctrines and impure practices. And so they arise in the first century, flourished in the second, disappeared by about the fifth or sixth century. And so their, their knowledge was supposedly of uh, religious mysteries. Not that faith was the road to heaven, but by simply having this certain knowledge, say for example, knowing the keys and the uh, signs and the tokens, and you know these things, and uh, you know, you've got your uh, path into the, uh, the kingdom of God is fixed and no need to worry, but it does, faith doesn't really matter, works don't really matter, uh, as long as you have the secret knowledge your set. And Paul was familiar with the Gnostic teachings even when he was still alive as late as 66 AD when he wrote uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 2021, he said, quote, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, that is knowledge, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith, close quote. So Paul, in this verse, doesn't use the, uh, the name of Gnostics or Gnosis per se, except the reference to this idea of those who uh, have these profane and vain babblings uh, and oppositions of science or knowledge, falsely so called. So that's really a, uh, a directed at uh, the Gnostic uh, teachings at that time. Now, Timothy, of course, was uh, a uh, companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was a young minister in Ephesus, and it's generally believed that he was also the bishop at the time uh, that John wrote his letter to uh, Ephesus, and so he might be the guy that's actually receiving this letter from John. Now, Irenaeus also tells us concerning the Gnostics that the Gospel of John was uh, probably written to oppose many of the Gnostic teachings. Um, and among the teachings of the uh, Gnostics, which were uh, espoused by the Nicolaitans in, uh, with even greater fervor, was the community of wives. And so the, the Nicolaitans taught um, that adultery and fornication were essentially things that they could be indifferent to. Eating meats offered to idols uh, was considered unlawful and forbidden by the Council of Jerusalem in 49 to 50 AD, but for the Nicolaitans, that really didn't matter, and they could have uh, meats that had been offered to idols. And so uh, this, this prohibition against eating meats offered to idols uh, was something that really prevented socializing and worldly participation in other religions, and the Nicolaitans essentially were all for it. And so they mixed several different types of uh, pagan rites with uh, Christian ceremonies, and uh, these are some of the things that the uh, Lord 
hated when he said, said that uh, he was pleased with the Ephesians that they at least hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. These are some of the deeds that they were involved in. And so in a certain sense, the Ephesians hated better than they loved because they had lost their uh, their love and their ardent love for Jesus Christ. But at least they still had an ardent hatred of the uh, the Nicolaitans and they absorbed so they abhorred Antichrist more than they loved Christ and so uh, the uh, to expound just a little bit more on some of these deeds that were taught by the Nicolaitan again based on these Gnostic origins um, they taught that to master sensuality one must know the full range of it by experience. And so you have this essential abandonment without reserve to all the lusts of the body. And so the Nicolaitan philosophy was that sensuality and immorality concerned only the body and did not touch the spirit. And because that was so, it's a free-for-all. Um, it's, it's the old eat, drink, and be merry in the worst possible way. And there was no feeling of any consequences tomorrow because they were concerned more with the spirit within and all of these physical pleasures. What does that have to do with the spirit? <laughs> so that was kind of their philosophy in life. Now, uh, this we are told by uh, Irenaeus, who was a historian and the bishop of Lyon, France in the second century AD. He wrote five books against heresies within the Christian church. He was also a disciple of Polycarp, who was the likely bishop of Smyrna at the time John wrote the Revelation. Now, Polycarp uh, knew personally the apostle John, was personally mentored by John, and John probably called him to be the bishop at Smyrna. And so there's a very close connection between John to Polycarp and then Irenaeus, who was personally acquainted with and a disciple of Polycarp. So not far removed from the apostle John himself. Now, what Irenaeus said concerning the history of the Nicolaitans, he said that Nicholas of Antioch the same guy I mentioned above when I talked about Acts 6-5, one of the seven deacons or bishops in the church who was the proselyte. Irenaeus says that Nicholas was the originator, originator of the Nicolaitans. Now, again, there are differences of opinion on this, but uh, at least with Irenaeus, we got a guy that's pretty close to the ground on this situation. He also said that uh, Nicholas had a beautiful wife that he supposedly shared among the congregants of the church to avoid jealousy within the church. So in other words, people see that Nicholas has this beautiful wife, uh, is creating some problems because he has a beautiful wife and other men don't. So the way to solve that problem, according to what Irenaeus tells us, is, well, let's just all share her so we don't have this kind of hard feelings among the members of the church. Um, and uh, if you go down throughout further history a little bit to another uh, Christian father by the name of Epiphanius, um, who some would characterize as a dubious historian as best, he takes the opposite view and said that uh, Nicholas was chaste, uh, and he was reproved 
by the apostles because he was a jealous husband, which he then repelled the charge saying, listen, if you want, I'll just offer my wife to anyone else. And these words were then perversely interpreted by the Nicolaitans as say, it's okay to share your wife. <laughs> so that's kind of how this story comes down. And uh, Eusebius, who quotes a lot, he's a much later uh, Christian father in the uh, third century. He refers back to the teachings of uh, Irenaeus um, and, and does... Uh, talk about Nicholas having this beautiful wife and was jealous of her. And according to Eusebius, uh, he renounced all sexual relations with her on account of the, uh, the, her beauty and apparently other men uh, finding her very attractive. And so he just kind of cast her off to one side. So as you can see, there are lots of different stories about uh, Nicholas the source of the Nicolaitans and uh, what was true or not. So uh, I, best, I guess the best thing we can come up with is not real clear whether it came from Nicholas, who was the proselyte from uh, Antioch. Now the name Nicholas also was a fairly common name in that day, which also makes the source of the Nicolaitan name uncertain because we have lots of choices. We have lots of Nicholases running around. Uh, and certainly it could be a name that didn't represent any specific individual at all, but instead was derived as a name given to this group of believers with these perverse views as a symbolic derivation of the licentious worship of Balaam in the Old Testament. And so John may have used the term Nicolaitan as a Greek word representing what means in Hebrew, Balaam. So Nicolaitan in Greek has a similar meaning to the Hebrew name of Balaam. Now Balaam signifies a person or thing that is a destroyer or corrupter of people. And so the two names are not strictly parallel. Nicholas uh, has the meaning of a conqueror of the people, whereas Balaam has a meaning as a corrupter of the people. So they're, they're closely related, but they do have slightly different meanings. Now, compared with all of this, we have to also take into consideration what is stated in Revelation 2.14, which is the letter that is going to go to the saints in Pergamos. And here the Lord says to the Pergamos saints, quote, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication, close quote. Now, I don't want to get into great detail of, of, the, of Balaam and Balak and the whole story, but to give you the nutshell version, because it, it comes into play here, uh, Balaam was a, uh, an Israelite who had the gift of prophecy, and Balak was a non-Israelite uh, who wanted to conquer the Israelites at the time of their wanderings uh, and the exodus. And so uh, Balak gets in touch with Balaam and says, hey, would you go ahead and make a prophecy against the Israelites so that I can defeat them? And Balaam, who's willing to accept an, 
uh, a certain amount of money in exchange for his prophetic gift says sure when he tries to do it he's unable to do it and in, and in fact the lord forces him to utter a blessing upon the israelites <laughs> so he didn't earn his money needless to say eventually after trying a couple of times uh, Balaam figures out that, you know what, I, I just can't curse Israel, but what I can tell you is how you can prevail against them. And so he tells Balak the, the, uh, the secret to defeating the Israelites is to get them to intermingle with the Moabite people and to commit sin, and that will weaken them physically as it weakens them spiritually, and then you can defeat them. And eventually, that's exactly what Balak did. He makes friends with the Israelites. They come to his big parties uh, that turn into these big orgies and uh, all of the other kinds of things, eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols and sacrificing. And sure enough, Balak comes in and wipes out a bunch of the Israelites and those who sinned in particular, some 23,000, 26,000, something like that. Uh, and he destroys them. And so this is what is being referred to here in Revelation 2.14, where the Lord had something against the saints in Pergamos, just as he has something uh, in favor of the Ephesians, because they hate the Nicolaitans, whereas the Pergamos saints kind of welcomed in their uh, their idolatry and their uh, their teachings whose substance was the foundationally from the Nicolaitans. And so this gives us a little bit more concept where we're talking about the Nicolaitans um, in, the, in regard to the Ephesians. We're seeing kind of two different people on separate sides of the same coin dealing with these Nicolaitans. And the fact that in the Pergamos church, Balaam is specifically referred to kind of gives some credence to this concept that the name may have been a symbolic derivation uh, rather than necessarily tying, tying it back to uh, our friend uh, Nicholas, the proselyte in Antioch. So, uh, you know, if, if, that, if we're right in that, then we all owe Nicholas of Antioch a big-time apology. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll be bringing a defamation lawsuit against all of us in the hereafter because he was falsely accused and uh, there's no basis for it. So I don't know which is right, but uh, certainly the fact that uh, Revelation 2.14 kind of ties it back to Balaam of the Old Testament does lend a lot of credence to this idea that it's a name that is symbolically derived uh, from Balaam. Uh, which has the same or closely the same meaning as the name um, as the Nicholas in uh, the Greek language. Okay, so uh, that's a little bit about some of the uh, historical information that we have about this group. The other thing that we can say is whatever the origin of the Nicolaitan name may be, it's pretty clear that the deeds of the Nicolaitans uh, were running rampant in most, if not all, the congregations by the end of the first century. And so the deeds of the Nicolaitans, to kind of express it a little bit further, uh, as I noted, is this false freedom to engage in self-expression and self-indulgence with no apparent consequences. And so you have professing Christians who Balaam-like 
introduce this false freedom or this licentiousness into the teachings of the church, just as Balaam in the Old Testament had taught things to eat that had been sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So this was essentially an abuse of Paul's doctrine of grace. So Antimonians and others like them, the Nicolaitans, uh, they, they take a biblical teaching and they extend it to an unbiblical conclusion. And that's why we, when we call them antinomians, uh, we have the word anti, which means against, and then nomos, which means law. That's where this word is derived from, this antinomians, is they are anti-law anti-nomos, right? And uh, so essentially, because they are against law, they argue against moral, religious, and social norms. Um, and uh, essentially, the, the essence of it is that the Lord's grace meant nothing was forbidden to the Christian because we're all saved by grace after whatever, despite whatever we may do, um, we're ultimately going to be saved because we have grace. And so Jesus essentially freed them from all the restraints of the law. And so this goes back to some of the sayings in, in uh, the Gospel of John, that uh, if we keep the commandments, then we shall be free. And they take that teaching uh, to mean that, oh, that means uh, I don't have to follow the law at all. <laughs> And so that's how we get from this, the idea of taking these biblical ideas and doctrines to these illogical, unbiblical conclusions. And so it allowed them essentially to indulge in all forms of pagan, uh, pagan practices, which they then considered uh, permissible. So it's, it's an entirely perverted premise, to say the least, the idea that uh, immoral conduct gives real purpose and meaning to God's saving grace. That's the essence of what they were telling us. It, it goes far beyond even the extreme of saying, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, um, because for them, there were no consequences. And Elder Neil Maxwell uh, referred to this as Nicolaitan nonsense, which I really liked. So, with regard to the uh, Nicolaitan uh, deeds and Christ's reaction to them, after kind of now recognizing their thought process, their principles, teachings, and doctrines, it, you kind of begin to understand why the Savior in Revelation 2.6 would make this very emphatic statement that I also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And, you know, I read that and I say, now that is a very strong expression coming from someone, Jesus Christ, who we often identify as the source of love. And we don't think about this idea or concept that there is within him this emotion of hate. And yes, it's expressed specifically uh, and unequivocally in, uh, in this verse in the book of Revelation. Now, what we need to focus on also, of course, is that he expresses this unequivocal hatred for their sins, 
but doesn't specifically express his hatred for the Nicolaitans as sinners. I think we do have to make that distinction, but nevertheless, it is true that God can hate the sin, but love the sinner whom he is trying to help and whom he is trying to ultimately save in the kingdom of God. And Joseph Smith kind of uh, expressed this uh, teaching in this way when he said, quote, God does not look on sin with allowance, but when men have sinned, there must be allowance made for them. Close quote. And that comes from the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at pages 240 and 241. So let me add just two concluding thoughts with regard to what we learn here in Revelation 2.6. First of all, no matter how abhorrent our sins might be, the Savior continues to love us. He loves the sinner and we can always repent unless we have committed the unpardonable sin. And so uh, there, that needs to be said. Having said that, we must and cannot have the Napoleon dynamite mentality of the Nicolaitans that, hey, I do what I want. <laughs> you know, that, that is not an option. There will always be a price for sin and transgression. In one case, if you repent, that sin or transgression will be one that Christ will pay for. If you do what you want and then you fail to repent, then you will ultimately have to pay the price uh, for refusing to repent. And that, that is kind of the message, I think, to uh, take away from this, uh, the, the Nicolaitan nonsense and Christ's hatred of their, their deeds. Um, and we have to recognize and appreciate that there is an opposition in all things. And so on the one hand, we recognize that uh, in, within Christ and his person, there is this perfect love, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't also have the attribute of his ability to feel hatred for things that are contrary to his teachings and are so abhorrent uh, as the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so uh, uh, we just need to stay far away from that uh, type of uh, mentality and not have the wrath of God come upon us for hating the deeds that we can sometimes become involved with ourselves. So thanks for uh, listening, liking, and sharing. Thanks to Jenna Daly for uh, all the technical uh, end of things. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, something a little bit more positive, and that is found in Revelation 2.7 that talks about those that overcome eat from the tree of life. And we're going to talk about what that means, and it's, it, it's most fundamental sense. It, of course, refers to those saints that overcome the types of worldliness and uh, perverse teachings that come to us from the Gnostics and from the Nicolaitans and in the modern world from any other sort of uh, false doctrine, whatever it may be, if we overcome those things, then we have the promised blessing of eating from the tree of life. And uh, we'll talk about exactly what that means next week. I'll see you then.